coming up on today's show, monkeypox has been around for a long, long time, but all of a sudden, we're talking about it and people are getting worried about it. Travis Taves has stepped in as the first candidate for the UCP leadership. And of course, the Bank of Canada hiking interest rates 50 basis points, second time in a row they've done this, probably more on the way. You've probably heard the stories. There's definitely been a spread in monkeypox. It's been it's been endemic in parts of Africa for a very, very long time. It's not a new virus. It's not a new condition. However, it's now showing up in Europe. It's showing up in Canada. It's showing up in the United States. And all of a sudden, we sit up and say, uh-oh, what's this monkeypox? What do we need to do? Well, we probably could have paid attention earlier than this, but that's, uh, that's the discussion we're going to have. We're going to chat now with uh, Jason Nickerson. Jason is a doctor and a humanitarian representative to Canada, for Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Nickerson, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. A bit of background on monkeypox. World Health Organization and uh, have come out and said, you know what, this is not going to be a pandemic. We're not heading into another global pandemic situation with monkeypox. Why not? Why, why are they fairly confident this won't rise to the level of, well, for example, COVID-19? Sure. So uh, one of the reasons for that is that it's simply just not as transmissible uh, as, as COVID-19. Um, and so we're still really trying to, to actually understand the epidemiology of the disease. Um, but we know that it's not as easily transmissible from, from person to person as COVID-19 is. Typically, most uh, the most common uh, means of transmission is, is uh, you know, skin-to-skin contact, basically. So somebody with uh, the disease comes in close proximity to another person and it transmits uh, that way. So um, what we've seen in previous uh, epidemics is that it doesn't have what we call a reproductive number, meaning, you know, the, the spread of the disease, it's a measure of the spread of the disease, is not nearly as, as high as COVID-19 is. So that's really, you know, probably a, a reassuring uh, fact for, for most people right now. Um in terms of monkeypox, like I say, it's been around for a long time. In fact, there's there's therapeutics and, and vaccination. I mean, there's that already exists when it comes to monkeypox, right? Well, yes and no. So um, you're correct. I mean, the disease has been around for a very long time. It was discovered uh, in, in 1958, actually, uh, in, in uh, laboratory monkeys, which is where the, the name monkeypox comes from, um, although that's a bit of a misnomer because we actually think that uh, the virus lives in a different animal reservoir. It's probably more in, in rodents like rats and squirrels and, and that sort of thing. Um, and the first human case was was identified in 1970 in a child in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the disease has been around for a very long time. Um, it does. It, it is a, a close family member, let's say, of, of smallpox. Um, so again, a, a reassuring fact is is that uh, the smallpox vaccine, both the older one that was used uh, in the eradication right. of smallpox, um, has seems to be about eighty five percent effective against monkeypox. And then there are uh, at least two other newer vaccines um, that have have been developed over time for smallpox, and and one of those is authorized specifically for uh, monkeypox here in in Canada and the United States. So, so Doc, you're talking about uh, an illness that we've known about for well, let's call it 50 years, back to the 1970s. Um, there yeah. are treatments, as you say, there's some vaccinations that you know are proving to be somewhat effective and have been effective and have also been around for a very very long time. So why why are we now starting to pay attention to monkeypox? Could we not have dealt with this long before we got to this situation? I mean, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, we we could have. 
Um, unfortunately, this is is a, a trend in what we see in, in global public health, and this is something that our teams, uh, working for Doctors Without Borders, see every day, is that, in fact, there are entire classes of, of diseases that are known as neglected tropical diseases um, that have significant public health burdens and in some cases are actually pathogens, meaning viruses and, and um, other pathogens that have pandemic potential. They have the potential to spread around the world and, and to trigger a, a pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, they don't receive very much attention uh, both from a, a research and development perspective, meaning there's very little interest from pharmaceutical companies in particular in developing treatments for them, um, because they're, they're largely present in low-income countries uh, that, that, you know, quite frankly, are, are just not profitable enough for, for companies to, to invest in uh, developing these, these new drugs and these new vaccines. It's just not a profitable market. And so, you know, that, that results in a huge neglect in the development of new diagnostic tools uh, of vaccines and of therapeutics, um, even though, you know, the, the, the risk is there. And as I say, it represents a significant public health burden. So it's, it's basically a market failure uh, for, for the development of, of uh, vaccines and, and therapeutics, even for pathogens that, as I say, present a, a potential to, to trigger a pandemic. But, Doc, isn't it true that we have some conditions that, you know, are potentially threatening pandemic-level things down the road could possibly, you know, erupt into that, that we already have developed. You know, you say it's a problem with research and development. We have some, you know, like Ebola, I'm thinking, we developed a vaccine in Canada for Ebola, didn't we? That's right. So um, it's not widespread. That's right. So, you know, the the Ebola vaccine story is is an interesting one. Um, And it's an unfortunate, really quite example of this, because the vaccine was developed uh, in the early 2000s um, by researchers at Canada's National Microbiology Lab in, in Winnipeg, um, so government scientists. Um, they also actually developed vaccine candidates for two other diseases, uh, Lassa fever um, and Marburg, and, and we can talk about those, but those are also worrying uh, diseases for which there's no approved vaccine. But for the Ebola vaccine, um, you know, we knew early on, the evidence was clear, this, this looked like a very promising vaccine candidate. Um, it was licensed out to a, a small pharmaceutical company in the United States, and they, they simply didn't develop it. Again, it comes back to this market problem. Uh, you know, really prior to the 2013-2014 the West Africa Ebola outbreak, which was a humanitarian catastrophe, yeah. um, there was no uh, real market or, or uh, incentive for companies to, to develop it further. And so it wasn't until things reached this tipping point uh, where... Uh, you know, as I say, it was very clearly a humanitarian catastrophe and, and rich countries got scared and um, that there is an investment uh, by uh, the world governments, uh, by the World Health Organization um, and others to, to actually take the next step to do the clinical trials to get it to the finish line. And now we have that vaccine um, and it's it's 97.5 percent effective when we use it in an Ebola outbreak. But um, unfortunately, there are other vaccine candidates for diseases that present a similar risk to global public health and that are still sitting on the shelf, despite the fact that we think that they probably are are very effective and could help to control diseases that present a a threat to to global public health. And it just comes down to money. And eventually we may have to pull them off the shelf because we're in a crisis situation rather than heading it off before it ever happens. It's kind of mind-boggling and a little disappointing, Doctor. It really is. 
Uh, it, it absolutely is. I mean, it, it, these two other vaccine candidates that I mentioned, um, you know, Lassa fever is is also uh, a viral hemorrhagic disease. It's a it's a slightly different virus than, than Ebola. It's an arena virus. Um, but it, look, there there is a Lassa fever outbreak that's happening in, in Nigeria. Uh, it's been going on since 2017. We know there are hundreds of thousands of cases that, that occur in, in North Africa and, and West Africa. And we also know that there are cases that are appearing in different parts, uh, in a, in a larger geographic space, yeah. uh, because the disease, uh, is, is mostly found in rodents and those rodents are, are moving to different parts, uh, of, of the world, uh, because climates are changing and, and humans are, are moving into new territory uh, where we haven't lived before. So, you know, there, there are diseases, as I say, that are out there. They present a real threat to, to the health of, of people living in places where they're endemic today yep. um, and probably present a real global public health threat. And, and we need to be getting ahead of this. We need to be developing uh, the, the vaccines that we need ahead of time, making sure that they're, they're available for use, um, both for today and, and for tomorrow. But that's not necessarily a, a, a profitable thing to do. And so we need to look at new ways of, of developing them. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. We told you yesterday that Travis Taves had... It's kind of curious the approach he's taking to this. He rather quietly entered the race to be leader of the UCP party. He didn't make an announcement. He didn't hold a press conference or a campaign launch or anything like that. But he did file his papers with Alberta elections. So that's how the media found out. Because if you go on Alberta elections, it says, you know, registered candidates. And lo and behold, there's Travis Taves. He's the only registered candidate, by the way, uh, to this point. Um, But we do know that Daniel Smith and Brian Jean have intentions to enter the race. However, when it comes to um, Taves, obviously this was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. He's been thinking about this, planning for this for some time. He launched this sprawling, sweeping, epic campaign video yesterday. Here's a clip. I was, I am, a passionate Albertan, inspired by this movement. And I believe that Albertans and our members can be inspired again, too. It would be an honor and a privilege to lead this party on the path of unity and healing for a stronger Alberta. Not gonna lie, it's really well done. It's uh, the production value is through the roof. I think there's some drone footage in there, all kinds of things. So there's been some work, there's been some planning, there's been some money spent on Travis Taves and his UCP leadership campaign. Is he the front runner? Well, he's the only registered candidate, so I guess we've got to call him the front runner. But what does it mean about other cabinet ministers? Let's break it down. We're going to chat now with Dr. Lisa Young, political science professor at University of Calgary. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to chat. Uh, happy to be here. Travis Taves. So, I mean, clearly, uh, are you surprised by the way this has rolled out? Like, there's been no official launch. There's been no campaign event. The video was released. He's got a Twitter account, but he just quietly filed the papers and, and went from there. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, in some ways, he let Jason Kenney announce that uh, he was running, he right? <laughs> uh, when when Kenney announced that uh, Tapes had resigned from cabinet. So, you know, it's very much a, a quiet launch. Um, and, you know, it, given the, the very peculiar circumstances of this leadership yeah. uh, contest, maybe it's not a bad thing. And particularly from someone who's, I think, quite a quiet guy. It's really striking how little we know about Travis Taves publicly, um, considering that he's held, you know, one of the most important cabinet 
positions in the province for three years now. Yeah, as finance minister, and you know, uh, one of your your colleagues, Dwayne Bratt, was saying, you know what, he might be such a big presence in cabinet and caucus that he's going to scare other ministers away. Do you think, I mean, Travis Taves, is he Jason Kenney reincarnated? Will he be the Kenney loyalist candidate? What's your take on how big of an influence he'll be in terms of the people already at the caucus table? Well, I think, you know, by entering early and establishing himself, I think he probably does, you know, suggest to other cabinet ministers that it might be difficult to enter the race. Although I think we need to keep in mind that, you know, with with the uh, with Taves, Brian Jean and Daniel Smith, we don't have any urban candidate, right? right? And if you think that the next election is going to be fought in Calgary, you know, that's a, a consideration for the party, right? That it not be simply seen as a rural-based conservative party. Well, Lisa, it's interesting you say that because if you watch Tave's video, his campaign launch video, it's lengthy. I think it's about two minutes, something like that. It is entirely done on a ranch. I mean, he's on horseback. He's he's rounding up cattle. It is incredibly rural, like to the point of it looks like a scene out of Yellowstone. There's no nods to the urban voter at all in this video. Are you surprised by that? I am kind of because, like you say, the battleground appears to be Calgary. Yeah. And I mean, this is the dilemma for Taves and frankly, for anyone else in this race that there are two very different competitions that you need to win. The first one is to win the hearts and minds of the UCP base. And then the second one is to win the provincial election next year. So, you know, it's not, I wasn't surprised at how rural the, the video was in the sense that, you know, what I took away from it was Travis Taves saying, I am everything that Jason Kenney pretended to be. And so if the party wanted, you know, what what Jason Kenney was pretending to be, what they need to do is to choose me and they'll get the real thing. I know how to ride a horse. And he's talking about the same things that Jason Kenney was talking about when he won the leadership. He's talking about unity. He's talking about healing. So we're right back where we were four or five years ago. But you're right. He's he's positioning himself as, I feel I'm the person that can bring unity and healing. So the message remains the same. But at the same time, he does need to distance himself from Jason Kenney in some way, right? Yeah. And I thought the single most important word in that video was humility. He He talked about the importance of humility. And I think that that was a pretty sharp poke at the premier and his effort to distinguish himself. And so, you know, if, if what you've been unhappy with for the past three years is the style of government, then I think Taves offers, you know, the, the same substance in some ways, but with a different style. And I think that might be very appealing to the UCP base. The, the interesting questions will come when when conversations of substance start happening. The other candidates uh, that might enter the race, if we're going to stick to cabinet and caucus for a minute here, Rajan Sani uh, announced that she's hired Ken Bossenkul. I guess you would call this an exploratory effort to try and figure out if she can offer something new. I mean, it's not unheard of. We've heard other leadership candidates say we're going to we're going to do a bit of an investigation. Are you surprised that she's taking this approach? It was an interesting approach. Um, you know, certainly potential leadership uh, candidates will 
say that, that we'll we'll have this kind of explore, uh, exploratory um, effort, but they don't usually announce it. So I thought that was interesting. Um, but, you know, she's identified somebody who's pretty high profile, yeah. Ken Bosenkult, who is going to lead this. And I, I think it's a way of signaling. And I think part of the issue here is that things are going to start happening pretty fast, right? Um, We don't know yet when the leadership contest is going to be, but there's lots of reasons to think that the party is going to try to have the the decision made sooner rather than later. And so having a quiet exploratory committee might mean that others don't know that you're thinking of jumping into the race, so maybe somebody else jumps in and, and positions themselves in that way. So I think it is a way of sort of putting a stake in the ground and saying, look, if you're looking for somebody different, if you're looking for an urban candidate, you know, think about me as being that yeah. candidate. The interesting thing is that there's no sort of certainty that she's going to be able to raise enough money or get enough support to to be a candidate. The only other member of caucus or cabinet who's sort of publicly flirting with the idea is Jason Nixon. He has said he is giving it some thought. He hasn't made a decision yet. He would be another heavyweight contender, I would think, if he jumped in, wouldn't you? Yeah. And, and, you know, he, uh, I think in some ways he's going to find it a little more difficult to distance himself from Kenny. Um, He's been, you know, very close with Kenny and he shares that sort of combative style that Kenny has in a way that Taves doesn't. So he's going to have a difficult time, I think, claiming that it would be a, a different style than Kenny. Um, from the outside, we know we have two named candidates in Daniel Smith and Brian Jean, who I guess would represent. Um, it's going to be interesting, Lisa. Help me make sense of this, because you're going to have the people that are in caucus that are cabinet ministers, you know, Travis Taves being one of them, that are going to have to somehow be different than Jason Kenney, while at the same time being part of his cabinet, going against the actual outsiders and Brian Jean and Daniel Smith, who are going to be coming in and saying, we need to get rid of everything that has a remote smell of Jason Kenney left on it. So how is that going to play out? I think it's going to be fascinating to watch this, right? Um, And, you know, Brian Jean, you know, certainly I think thought of himself as being the front runner, as the natural successor. He came back in order to, to try to lead the party. But it's very difficult to be seen as the person who ousted the leader and then to be seen as the peacemaker. Um, I think he's going to have trouble getting um, uh, endorsements from inside the the caucus and certainly from cabinet. Um, You know, we've already heard a story that's leaked out of the caucus meeting where, you know, he he got quite uh, combative with another MLA. I'm not sure that, you know, it'll, it will be really interesting to see whether he can take the machinery that he developed to, um, you know, push Kenny out and turn it into a successful leadership bid. Yeah, it, it's going to be a really interesting leadership race, no doubt. And uh, we're glad that we have you to help us make sense of it all. Uh, Dr. Young, thank you for your time again. Bank of Canada this morning announced that uh, the interest rate in our country is going to 1.5%. It is the second straight increase of a half a percentage point. Same thing happened last month. 50-point move. This was not a surprise. Not in the least. We've known this is going to happen for literally weeks and months now. And there's probably going to be more. But uh, it's not a surprise, but here it is. It's arrived. Uh, This is, in fact, the third time this year 
that uh, the central bank has raised interest rates from near zero, which they were at for so very, very long. But why? It's a response to inflation. That's how monetary policy works. So to get some details on um, how this is meant to work and, you know, what what we can expect in the future and what we need to see in order to say, okay, we're getting a handle on things, we're going to chat now with Steve Ambler, who is a professor of economics at the University of Quebec in Montreal, and the David Dodge Chair in Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute. Mr. Ambler, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. A pleasure to be with you. So again, this half-point hike today, I mean, we've known about this for a long, long time. This was fully anticipated. It shouldn't be a shock to anybody. shouldn't be a shock to markets. This was expected. Yeah, markets uh, completely anticipated this, as did most pundits. I I think there was some, a little bit of speculation that the bank might have even gone to 75. Right. uh, uh, they stuck with 50. But uh, as you said in your introduction, it's uh, it's not going to end here. That's the thing. I'm wondering, um, what do you anticipate personally in terms of hikes? Uh, you know, July, would you expect to see more? And will this continue for the foreseeable future? Um, I would not be surprised to see another 50 in July, to be honest. Um, if you look at what's been happening to inflation uh, since the end of 2021, uh, you know, the bank sort of missed an opportunity to start hiking in January, and it's had there's been three announcements since, and as you pointed out, uh, two two fifty point hikes and one twenty five point hike. Uh, it's it's unprecedented because uh, you have to go back twenty years to to find the bank hiking by by fifty basis points. But inflation has moved up from 4.8% to 6.8%, which is a two percentage point increase. So actually inflation is going up more, has been going up more rapidly than the bank's been increasing its interest rate. And if you look at it in terms of what economists call real interest rates, which is the interest rate minus inflation, that means that uh, real interest rates are actually becoming more negative. Still. Uh, yep. Uh, well, I mean, with the 50, you know, we'll wait and see what happens to inflation uh, in May. Right. Those numbers come out in the, about around the middle of the month. Uh, if it doesn't go up much beyond 6.8, then the 50-point uh, increase is going to start moving real interest rates up. But uh, as I yeah. say, they're, they're strongly negative, which means that... Uh, if you borrow money today, the amount, the amount in terms of real goods and services that you're going to have to pay back in the future is uh, going to be eroded by by that inflation. What do we need to see? Like, you, like, I mean, obviously, this is the lever they're pulling to try and bring inflation in check. And as you say, it's anticipated that it's going to continue to go up yet again. Um, what? How long do you anticipate this taking? And what 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 are you looking for in terms of how these two? Um, numbers are working, the interest rates and the inflation rate working hand-in-hand. Hand. How does that that relationship work, and what's the timeline? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of hoping and praying that uh, we're not going to go much above 6.8% in terms of inflation. The ba- they, what was interesting in the bank's announcement is that they themselves are saying now that even in the short run, they're expecting inflation to increase a little bit more. Um, now, the, the bank has what they call a neutral rate of interest, which is the interest rate that they would expect to be setting if inflation were at 2% and the economy were at full capacity. Now, the bank says we're actually above full capacity right now, and as we have just said, uh, inflation is way above 2%, which mm-hmm. is its target. Uh, so you would you would almost expect uh, in, uh, the 
uh, bank's interest rate to be at neutral already, and they estimate that to be between two and three. Okay. So I mean, another ways another to go. Fifty, uh, yeah, another fifty point increase in July will get us to the low end of that range. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I, I, you know, as I say, we haven't seen fifty point hikes for twenty years until recently, but I would not be surprised to see at least two or three more. In the next, in the next uh, two or three announcements. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, in terms of what the bank will be looking for when it comes to the inflation rate, um, it, it, does it need to just start trending down, or is there a benchmark they have in mind where they can say, "Okay, what we've done is working here"? I mean, wh- how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I think if it's if inflation does start trending down, they're, they're, then they're going to that's going to allow the bank to be cautious before continuing to hike much further. I think housing markets are already cooling to some extent. Um, you know, it, if you if you're sitting, if you have a mortgage uh, which has a particular uh, value, overall value in nominal terms, over time the amount you're going to have to pay back in real terms is going to be going down. But in the short term, a lot of people are being squeezed. Um, it is if you're if you're looking if you have a variable rate mortgage or you're looking at a renewing a mortgage in the near future your monthly payments are going to be, be going up. Uh, and that's going to filter through. I mean, if you're, I think most most Canadians, I'm optimistic that can can, can afford that because I think mortgages in Canada are, uh, you know, you have to put down a fairly high percentage down. And if you can't, they have to be insured. And I, I think peop- households will be able to afford the increases. But they might have to be able to do that. They might have to cut back in, in other areas um, you know, where they can. Right. Obviously, uh, gas is a tough one, and food is another tough yeah, one. Yeah, and there's no getting around some of these things, right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So, but, you know, in areas where uh, spending is more discretionary, you might see some, some weakness. And that's the kind of thing which, uh, you know, the bank is going to need to help get inflation under control because if uh, demand is weak in those areas then uh, then prices are going to uh, stop going up quite as quickly. Um, okay, last one and I'll let you go. We've talked to some economists over the course of this inflationary period saying the way that this is going to end is with a recession and that's how it's happened before. Um, how would that play out and is that something that you think could be the way that this ultimately comes to a conclusion? I'm hoping not. Uh, you know, as, as I say, if 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 inflation peaks pretty soon and then starts coming back down again, then the bank is going to be able to uh, be less aggressive. And as we as we said, to, you know, towards the beginning of the conversation, real interest rates are still yeah. pretty negative. Uh, so as long as we don't uh, see uh, the bank's rates go much above, say, three. And inflation is coming down. Then uh, hopefully the the two will meet uh, as the the bank rate goes up, and as inflation comes down, they'll sort of cross before uh, interest rates get too high and uh, the economy suffers too much. So I think we're I think we're gonna we're gonna need to see uh, the economy growing more slowly. But hopefully that won't turn into a, a real recession where growth is negative for, for a couple of quarters. Um, okay, I lied. One so, more. Cross our, cross our fingers. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, Bank of Canada doing what they can. We keep getting told by, uh, you know, Bank of Canada and government officials that this is really outside of Canada. This is an international issue that's going on right now when it comes to inflation. This is global. So how effective can the Bank of Canada really be, or the government of Canada, should they try anything? Or are we sort of dependent on conflict in Europe and price of oil and all those things? I mean, is there only so much we can do? Yeah, because a lot of this is uh, being driven by supply factors. So as you as you pointed out, uh, what's what's happening in the Ukraine? I'm assuming that this is going to be, uh, I hope, good for some Alberta farmers because the demand for grain is yep. going to be strong. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think, uh, from my understanding, is that fertilizer prices are going through the roof. A lot of that comes from from the Ukraine, so that's going to be a tough one for for farmers to figure out. And you know, other things other things have been beyond the bank's control. I mean, China is still uh, seems to be sticking with its uh, zero COVID policy, and uh, the port of Shanghai, which I think is the busiest port in China, is starting to open up again. But it's it was shut down for uh, a good couple of months, which means that any kind of uh, either consumer goods or intermediate inputs that we import from China have just been stuck, which does not help things at all. No, exactly, yeah. There's so many friction points and so many pressure points right now. Um, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us and walking through some of these numbers. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.